Properties, the podcast that cuts the property industry to the bone. We answer your questions with our expert guests and call out all the bullshit that makes the industry only slightly more popular than British politics. We are your hosts, Matt Smith. And I'm Chris Erickson. And we are your Properties. Chris, here we are on episode four of the podcast. Here we are. And I'd like you to tell us all about how your body is feeling today. Oh, so I um, I ran the uh, Royal Parks Half Marathon uh, yesterday and I'm in a world of pain. You look I, like it. I'm too old to be doing half marathons. <laughs> um, and uh, truth of the matter, I was actually injured just before, uh, injured my foot the week before. I uh, had a golf ball sized bruise on my foot and then uh, I was in bed on Wednesday uh, not because I was tired but uh, battling the flu so I didn't actually think I was going to make it um, but we pushed through um, it was hell Viking style yeah it was hell and I'm paying for it now yeah. how's your weekend Matt? Uh, mine was very good I had uh, I had a lot of uh, a lot of drinking and eating yeah. uh, so I'm feeling uh, not so great either <laughs> for totally different reasons Cl- uh, classic yeah. Matt weekend yeah exactly exactly and what well, today we have a special guest yeah. David Huggett, who we'll introduce in a second. Um, so, David, you've um, you've worked in foreign exchange for twelve plus years, uh, but you've also been an estate agent with two major brands. That's right. Studied quantity surveying in Nottingham, mm-hmm. and you've now set up your own FX business. And in your own words, to demystify the industry, we're very much looking forward to hearing all about this. So, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Well, very good. Yeah, welcome, David. Um, I thought we could just sort of start with the sort of the journey, if you like, in terms of how you got started and everything else. So if you'd like, for the sake of our listeners, sort of share your journey into the foreign exchange industry and uh, what led you to create Lucid Financial Markets? Yeah, for sure. So as as Matt mentioned, I, I did a degree at Nottingham in, in construction uh, back in, God, 2000, finished in 2002. And I left uni uh went straight into the world of construction and lasted about 12 months. I hated it. It was, uh, it was just not for me. It was, it was sort of stuck in an office, uh, just no contact with people. Just, it was hideous. And at the time, I, I had been looking through some uh, alternatives, I guess, and Foxton's came up uh, with its recruitment process back then, as we, I think we all know. Oh, yes. Certainly do. And have all experienced. And I... Um, I went. I went along. Got got the uh, got got the the ask the interview for the uh, for the interview. Went along. Spent the evening at, at Chiswick Park and and met some people and had the the quick ten minute uh, interview and left in really high spirits. Next day, got the call. You, you haven't got the job. You haven't got the. Job. I haven't got the job. And wow. I was and I was. I I can't explain how. Uh, I guess disappointed I was, dejected, and I and I that evening went out to drown my sorrows with some friends and. And the the advice I got, the, the the friend I went out with that evening was, I think I think at the time she was working in recruitment, and she said, "Get on the phone tomorrow morning and tell them you've made a terrible mistake." <laughs> so I did, and I I phoned back, and I I said, "Look, I'm, I think you've made a mistake here. I, I'm I'm absolutely right for this." And they were like, "Okay, fine, Look, we'll come back to you." And an hour later or so, they, they phoned back and said, "You got to come meet the main man." And I went in to meet Peter and. Uh, uh, following that interview, I got the call the next day and said, "Right, we, we're going to give you a crack." Oh, and then, good. yeah, it was uh, it was it's the just best. What they're looking for, right? Exactly, mm. right. At the time, it was absolutely the way they operated, and, and that that whole kind of that whole process of the fact that I went out with that person that night for a drink, and they gave me that advice was just I kind of I, I believe in that kind of the way things go. Yeah. So 
I spent <clears throat> spent four four years at, at fo four or five years at Foxton's. Wow, that's uh, a, that's a long stretch for Foxton's. Yeah, so I was about in Ballam for a year, I think, and then I moved to Batty uh, as a lister, and I I left there in I think two thousand eight, something like that. Yeah, when because I wanted to do the the Central London thing, went to Chesterton, Pimlico, and then uh, Kensington, and then that led to the whole FX thing. And, and I think it was really post credit crunch. Uh, it was, it was tough. It was a tough business at that time. And, you know, I was kind of 30 ish and I, I kind of didn't really know what I wanted to do or, or kind of what the, the future held. And I had, a, I had a, uh, a, a vendor that was a, that worked in or around currency. And I kind of looked into, I guess, careers in currency or something like that. And again, I, it, it kind of all went back to the beginning and I got a, an interview with a broker in the city and, it it was a it, it was something I went along to one afternoon, but again a bit of a funny turn of events. I'd actually declined the interview because it seemed very you know it's sort of one hundred and fifty dollars a day you know very KPI driven very kind of smash and grab you know. I thought you know what I'm, my brother's a headhunter and I and I'd spoken to him about it and we sort of said this probably isn't for me. Phone the recruiter this isn't for me. And they said fine okay as as you wish. And then somebody I worked at Foxton's with back in the day, worked at this firm. <laughs> They'd seen my name in the diary and they said, oh, see Dave Haggart's coming in and, the, and the, I guess the PA or whatever had said, no, he's not, he's declined. And I got a call from him and he said, I see you were coming in and I see you declined, let's go out for a beer and talk about it. And and I'll, I'll you know, I'll tell you the sort of warts and all side of it. And so I did and took me through it. And again, it was that sort of chance thing of him seeing my name in the diary. Yeah. You know, and I, it all slips into place. Correct. Mm. Went home and I said to, you know, I've been in an agency for, I guess, eight, eight, nine years and it was a big move and you know, a mortgage and I think probably we, I was married at that point. But but we sort of, I trusted my wife about it and we sort of said, look, this is, let's just give it a roll, give, give it a go. And I did and because I was old, you know, I was 31 on a grad scheme, you know, all the guys I'd started with were, you know, 18, 19, whatever. But because of that, I think it, it allowed me a chance to sort of push through. They wanted to get me in front of clients quicker because it was, you know, just, yeah. a, I guess, profile, whatever for it. And then I spent, yeah, 11, 12 years, left there. Uh, for the same company? Did? Same company, yeah. yeah. And I did. I started halfway through, I started moving a lot of my origination to Europe, Spanish and Portuguese corporates. And I did a lot more on the derivative side. So <clears throat> sort of options, FX options which there was a big appetite for in that market. So I was in the process of moving to Madrid in 2020. Uh, and obviously COVID killed that. Yeah, uh, I've been commuting there for six months, sort of Monday to Thursday to try and spin the business up down there and, and a recruit and things like that. And then when COVID hit, Spain was, was really, really hard hit. You know, it basically shut down and the city being the city and, and the, the way it was, they, you know, they were, still one of the same numbers that didn't exist yeah. and you know for me to go down there and it was a it was a big risk and I thought you know what this is I'd given up all my UK clients at that point and I thought well this is time to time to kind of call time on this and I left and I did some consulting stuff with some other brokers and then I kind of thought well I'm sort of using all my experience and my network etc to um just to, to, to help these businesses so I'm not going to do this myself and again it's my wife that said look it's time you've got to go and do it for yourself yeah but I always talked about it I always wanted to do it and I did and and here I am I guess what 14 months later 
Very good. Yeah. And t- tell us, um, I think, t- tell our listeners what exactly is FX, because uh, I think maybe some people aren't, aren't, aren't sure. Let's first clarify that. So yeah, sure. No, great question. I think, um, it, so as I, said, as I mentioned before, my, my background is corporate currency. So it's large, mid large cap companies that are buying and selling abroad in other currencies. So my largest client at the time was a largest importer of LG, Apple, Xiaomi, um, Samsung in Spain. So they were buying two, three hundred million dollars a year uh, to buy those products, import them, and then wow. they would distribute. They're a distributor, and I would provide strategies around the optim, sort of optimizing when to execute the the euro to dollar transaction, whether that was real time or in the future. So using futures and options, forwards and options. Uh, but when I when I left the city and and did a bit of work for some other companies, I spotted this kind of I guess almost this part of the market that I think is super underserved, the kind of high net worth or large transactions for private clients. Mm. So there's a and there's a huge amount of money moving around the world, right? Especially in the corp and um, excuse me in the private space, and if with the advent of like revolutes and transfer wise this world i think currency has become very transactional but actually it requires a lot more uh analysis cons- consultation when there's a currency aspect to any transaction whether it's transfer of wealth real estate uh immigration inheritance whatever it may be so what i do now what i what my business does now is it helps people understand the market that they're going to trade in mm-hmm because FX is you know, it's the most liquid market in the world. Yeah. Uh, and it never stops moving. And there's a massive misconception that F- an FX trade is, well, we'll just get the best rate. What's the best rate I can get now? It's what's the best rate I can get this second? Because in 10 minutes, 20 minutes, two yeah. days, a week, it's a, it doesn't matter. It's a, it's market's moved and the, the world's moved on. And then the other side of it is the operational side. So actually moving money from the UK to Europe or to the US or to the Far East or wherever it may be, or, or Australia, I do, do quite a bit in Australia now as well, um, is is challenging. There's a huge amount of compliance yeah. that goes into these transactions. What sort of compliance? Well, it's, it's I think what's really interesting is the, the I think the banking system, financial world, in the time I've been, even since I've left university, since I went through uh, state agency and then through the city hasn't really it, we've we've moved on technologically you can send a payment through an app right yeah but but the behind the scenes side of it just hasn't really evolved we're still it's almost become more clunky and more restrictive because of the checks and balances that are required when moving especially large sums of money you know under certain limits up to i think it's like ten thousand or twenty thousand not a huge amount of attention is paid but once you get into the big numbers, you need a lot of just hey, in, just in the UK or all over everywhere. The, the, I mean, the US banking system, for example, is you know it's quite astonishingly um, poor. You know, it's I think in in in, in places like Canada now, you, there are certain banks that won't let you transact <sighs> online. You have to go in. You know, yeah. which makes it incredibly challenging for the transaction that that. FX trade is involved in. So let's just use real estate because it's a, it's, it's a really, really pr- prime example. 
people send funds or they'll execute a transaction and then the funds may get held by an intermediary bank or a, or a receiving bank. And all the client sees is the funds not arrive. Mm -hmm. You try and call a bank these days, it's two hour hold, it's, yeah. you never get the same person twice. The, even if you do get through to someone, they don't know you, they don't understand the situation. And therefore a huge amount of efficiency is lost, but also a huge amount of um, frustration can be reduced if these trades are managed right. But I think we've kind of gravitated as the world has to the sort of te technological side of these transactions and it makes for problems. Um, and they're the problems that I want to try and solve. Okay. Well, well that, that brings us on to, to a question that we wanted to ask is, is what sets Lucid Financial Markets apart from other foreign exchange services? Yeah, great question. I, th I think, you know, there's like all industries, there are there are uh, operators in each industry that you could class as they do one job, whether it's real estate, whether it's medicine, legal, accounting, whatever it may be. But actually, when you drill down, they all have a specialism. And I think the, the I set out on my journey with this business to help, like I say, high value uh, private clients. And I do I do manage a corporate book as well, but it's part of my business. But the, on the private client side. It's to help high net worth individuals with large value trades create a, a better outcome and a better process throughout that transaction rather than utilizing, which most people would naturally just gravitate to the bank. Very, very expensive, very low service. But also I think that without sounding too self-serving, it's pure client first. There's no KPIs, there's no financial targets. I don't operate that model. Mm -hmm. I've been in that world. And look, it's not it's not wrong, but I think it's the client that suffers the most from that. When I worked in the city, you know, you, you have to fill a quota to keep, I mean, ultimately to keep your job and to get paid, right? Yeah. And that, that drives a certain type of behavior. Wh yeah. Whether you tell yourself it doesn't or it does, it drives a certain type of behavior. Of course, yeah. And, and being outside that now, it's allowed me to become the best I can be at what I do because now it's just what's the best outcome for the client. Right. The revenue part and, and all that stuff, it just takes care of itself. But when you don't have, when you allow yourself to step away from the numbers race, yeah, you produce your best work yeah, and the client gets a really, really great outcome. A good quality of service. Yeah. yeah. And and I, and I think what I've, the only thing I've targeted myself is my, is my kind of review, my trust pilot or... That, that's the thing that I care the most about. And actually, when you take care of just that, like I say, the numbers, the revenue, whatever, that yeah. kind of takes care of itself. Why doesn't a high net worth individual have somebody that does this for them? Would they deal directly with a bank? Or? Yeah, I think in the main, you know, private banks still hold a, a, a strong position in that trade. But again, it's a it's a very, very easy place to make for a, for a bank to make money. Why is it more expensive for uh, for to trade through banks as opposed to through yourself? I think I think that the it's the way that revenue is is derived from these transactions. So it's from spread. So it's the disparity from the interbank rate to the achieved rate, and I think that's where it's quite murky for a lot of clients. They don't understand that. Well, just can you can you explain that just in layman's terms? Yeah, for terms sure. The spread and what what, what exactly? Of that course. Means? So the 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 interbank market trades. At a, at a rate, which is the the rate that the banks essentially trade between institution levels trade mm. between, and then there's the the kind of I guess 
commercial rate and then there's a retail rate. And a retail rate, you know, you go to an airport and you try and buy currency, it's 10 cents from the interbank rate, right? Your yeah. dollar's trading at 130, you're getting 120. And my job is to of course, to close that gap a lot so that the client generates more sterling for the euros, the selling, whatever it may be. But it's it's more about when during the current trading cycle, when are they executing that transaction? Mm. The spread bit is measurable because with the internet, with apps, etc., we have access real time to what the interbank market is. So naturally, as humans, our brains go to, well, we've got to get as close to that as we can. Yeah. At the point in which we execute but the but the reality is that that's irrelevant if you're trading at the bottom of the market if you're trading at the bottom of the trading range so without getting too technical with a client i i want them to have a kind of high level understanding of the market at the time during their time frame so if it's a real estate transaction are they looking to exchange now complete now whatever what's that time frame are they just beginning their search therefore they need to understand the market they're exposed to because it's going to have an impact like we spend a huge amount of time negotiating real estate deals right yeah. buyer and seller but that can be all that negotiations burnt in a day's trading in fx if it's not managed and watched and, and right. accounted for right but the banks uh will rely on the fact that there's a there's a safety in using the bank, right? There's a feeling of familiarity and there's a feeling of, um, I guess almost, dare I say it, reliability, despite the fact that I think that there's a big frustration with bank, the banking system mm. right now. It's just what you're used to, I Correct. suppose. Yeah. yeah. So if, if someone were, uh, if some of our listeners were buyers or sellers, at what stage is it beneficial for them to be in touch with somebody like yourself? The, the, longer, the longer you have... The longer I have, or any anyone any I guess FX professional has with a client on their case, the, the more valuable they are because you can. What I like to do is provide, like I say, an amount of information whether that's t uh, fundamental, you know, market information, what's happening with the economies, what's happening from a technical point of view. I have a technical background, so I use those. The, the reason I use technicals is because it's visual. You can show, I mean, markets move in three directions, right? Up, down, or sideways. That's it. There is nothing else. And you're only ever in one of those, one of those, uh, the, the market's only trading in one of those directions at the time, whether it's near term, long term, short term. But again, it's analyzing the client's situation and helping them. It's kind of talking them back from the edge of going, well, there's always an, a, an aspect of a client's transaction they say well if i wait a few days it might get better yeah yeah but why and it might and could it also get worse correct <laughs> of course but i think yeah. it's it's my well, the way i see it is i tr i help my clients get to 51 percent of a decision okay and then stick with that decision wholeheartedly mm -hmm. and that's that's all you can do it's it, it's the same with corporate businesses when i'm dealing with corporate decision makers my job isn't to go, I'll give you the best rate. I'll give, you know, it's not, that's not, that's not FX management. That's like going into to, to evaluation and saying, I'll do it for half a percent. Mm -hmm. If you can't provide the service or you can't, and we know that that's how the, you know, that's just a race to the bottom, right? Yeah. And we know the outcome of that. Yeah. And we know what that creates and the type of industry that creates. And I think that's why, again, real estate is a great example. It's very, it's very similar. There's this huge emergence of, the, the kind of broker yeah because it allows people to provide a consultative service absolutely to act as a consultant rather yeah. than a 
like a, like in my world, I position myself as a consultant. Not I'm not a remitter. I'm a consultant. Is to consult on each client situation, whether it's a private client buying a property or whether it's a corporate client looking to navigate the next twelve months to prevent erosion of their PL. Um, so in terms then, <clears throat> David, in, when you get involved in this transaction, is it pre-exchange, post-exchange? Oh no, pre for sure. It's pre-exchange. Yeah, of course. And then it's a case of you know. Hedging comes into private clients. You know, the, a client exchanges today, and for whatever reason, they have a six-week, 12-week completion. Yeah. You want to know you're paying the same. You want to know you, you're going to pay what you agreed to pay, right? Yeah. If you're a net seller of currency to buy sterling, and you have a big strengthening in the pound in that 12-week period, if you're talking, you know, big ticket, four or five million pound properties, you know, they can be on the hook for another one, two, three hundred grand. Mm. It just in the fact that, that that trade hasn't been managed properly. Yeah. And I think it's it's just the the challenge is helping people understand that it's really it's as important to manage that transaction is as it is the legals or the price you're paying for the property or you know what I mean? So if somebody's looking for a property, for example, when they find something that they want to buy at what and at, at that stage their money's in the US, say for example, mm-hmm. um, you are at, at that point advising them when to lock in the rate and when to bring their money yeah. over, depending yeah, on the sure. timing of their transaction. You might say, bring it over now, mm-hmm. or you might say, my advice would be to wait. Yeah, for sure. So I, I, I think what's really important is, like I'm not a speculator, so I don't carry proprietary positions. I don't help people gamble the markets. It's, but what I will do is I'll provide them all the information available to make the best decision possible. Which, where that's to trade or to or not to trade, it's helping them make information-based decisions rather than, you know, again, the the financial services will always push a client to execute. Right, a lot of the, well, all of my private client work is referred. Yeah, um, and a lot of the pe- partners that refer to me have taken a long time to build relationships with because. They've had these types of relationships in the past, but they pass the work to the broker and then it's kind of like straight to the dogs, you know, it's like hound the client and just get the deal done. And yeah. again, I, I, you know, we're, we're all in business to make money. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting otherwise, but these transactions are sensitive. It's people's money. They need to be, they, they need to be managed at a level that isn't pushy, that they're, that they're presented really high quality information to help them make a decision. I don't tell people what to do. I help them make a decision based on my analysis or the prevailing market or my experience in real estate or financial markets, economies, whatever. And then I believe that they then leave the, the transaction feeling that they've made a decision based on actual facts and figures. So that makes yeah. Sense. Yeah, yeah. Rather than just being railroaded into or scaremongered into to trading. And then there's the operational side, which like I say, is making sure that that money gets from the US to the UK in time for exchange yeah. completion. So they're not you know, facing penalties. I mean, a lot of the work I do now is where clients have sent funds internationally and they just don't turn up. They've been sanctioned by or held by a intermediary bank, client can't reach the bank. They've, eventually the money turns up. 
but then you know they've got an angry lawyer and a vendor or absolutely whatever so that's happened with um, people that you know about yeah. property transactions yeah for sure yeah gosh really wow okay yeah because that it, can be that can cause all sorts of knock-on effects of course mm. yeah you know, penalties and mm. you know etc and it's it's yeah and but most importantly it just makes the transaction really stressful yeah absolutely um, it's interesting that um fx doesn't come into the world of sort of property purchasing, if you like, mm-hmm. in the way it should do. Yeah. Matt and I come across, we, I mean, we're, we're sort of doing this for the benefit of our listeners, but mm-hmm. we do come across this quite regularly. Yeah. A Cypriot client recently who had all his wealth in the US mm-hmm. and he he was obsessed with FX. Right. You know, there's an introduction coming in there a bit afterwards, but, and, and he kept saying, he kept looking at the rate on a daily basis. Yeah. And he's saying, I have to offer hundred thousand pounds less because of this. Yeah. And you know, most buyers and sellers perhaps don't feel confident enough to speak to a property broker or an estate agent about these sort of things because they think it's sort of above their pay grade or above their understanding. But in reality, it affects most of the clients in London mm-hmm. because they're international clients. Yeah. Um, so that brings me on to another question in terms of misconceptions. What are some of the most common misconceptions with FX in terms of what people think about FX? Yeah, I think, um, you know, it's it's... It's another one of those industries that's, you know, I think I think I can say this having been one and and you know, looking at real estate again as a great example is there's, there's a huge amount of people there's a there's a huge amount of connotations around being an estate agent right or estate agent is a huge umbrella for many things, which like I say is now I believe evolved really for, very much for the better into professional services, but FX is no different. It's it's a it's a big title for many different aspects of uh of the same asset class of management the same asset class and i think it comes back for me to it's the city and the city's an untrustworthy beast anyway but also the fx is just so kind of cost-led there's this thought of just got to get the best rate Mm. at the point of execution and i think it's just it's picking it apart and giving people enough information so they can suddenly go okay I can, actually, I can see the the trend there, or the momentum, or the what, what's happened in the past, and why it's happened. And like I say, because I use a technical approach or a technical aspect, or part of my analysis is technical, it allows them to see to see the market rather than just see a number moving on a screen. Mm-hmm. Because when you do, when you have the number moving on the screen, you're just chasing a number. You're just willing something to go your way, yeah. And and you don't have the the understanding. And I think that's the problem is. There's, there's so much confusion within FX, and so much. You, it's so easy to spin it up to get someone to do something. That I think that's the that's the real travesty of the whole thing. It's like people are just given information for an outcome that it probably isn't the most beneficial to them. It's to the benefit of someone else. Does that make sense? Yeah, perfectly. And I think you're absolutely right. I mean, you are absolutely right in terms of. Uh, People look at FX and they think it's just about the best rate. Correct. I mean, you, you, it's, that starts quite early in, in your life in terms of just going on holiday, right? Yeah. You're thinking, oh, I'm going to exchange, you know, back in the day we had more currencies before the euro, but I mean, euro to dollar, euro to sterling, whatever it is. And that's the only thing you're looking at. But in essence, you're also facilitating the entire financial transaction. Yeah. Making sure the money is coming through correctly because with all the due diligence and litigation that's coming across the world, we're seeing this more and more. I mean, we've been advised there are several countries which we should be very wary about. Yeah, for Money's sure. coming from there. Mm-hmm. I mean, China being one of them, yeah. for example. So you're sort of facilitating that entire process as well. Yeah, right? yeah, for sure. And and I think that that's a, that's a really good point. You know, it's hard to it, it's hard to manage the movement of funds. 
and it's massively underestimated. And I think people go into these transactions, whether it's real estate, whatever, and they don't put enough consideration on this. They get to the point of a deal um, or some momentum or something happening within the, the, the transaction they're looking to do. And this bit's kind of becomes, it's been treated as an afterthought. And then it once it does become relevant to the deal, the problems bring themselves, you know, whether it's where the money resides mm. right now and where it needs to get, end up, there's, there's challenges. And again, goes back to the question you asked Matt, which is the, the, the longer you have on this to advise a client, the 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 better the, the transaction is. Yeah. And I think that that comes speaks to the point around, you know, a really great deal transaction is great agent, great lawyer, FX if relevant. Um and you, you, if you if one of those is a weak link, th then the, then that's that ripples across the transaction. Yeah. You know, we we met an ex colleague the other day who was telling us that a, a massive deal had fallen through because, uh, almost at the point of exchange, they weren't happy with where the money was coming from and uh, they they couldn't basically right. transact. Which yeah. is you know that I suppose that's also something that you 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 would have discovered presumably earlier yeah on, so correct yeah and, 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 and i think as much of as that it's that the clients understand or that they, they maybe underestimate the movement of that of those funds yeah and what's what's required if there's extra paperwork required because you know everything has to meet minimum uh compliance yeah absolutely. Uh, requirements right yeah and, no, and that's never. i think what i do now is always front run all that make sure everything's in place so that when the Funds need to move, they just move from start to finish. Well, Dave, can, can you talk us through um, basically how a, a typical transaction experience would go from start to finish and I would do, do right from the word go of an introduction and to get advice? Do, 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 does somebody have to pay you initially to get no, advice? No, no. I think how it's, does it work? it's a really good question. I, I, I so the, the, the initial, I guess, the first port of call is the, the kind of discovery of the introduction and then looking at their business case i mean whether it's a property transaction or a whatever the whatever the reason for the for the the currency trade and then assessing where there is value that can be added if a client is moving money it's not a huge amount or it's a very straightforward transaction and and i've had a, had the chance to look at where they're being executed by the bank it, it's it's not uncommon for me to say, look, you, you've got everything. You, you're in a, you're in good hands. Right. You don't need me to. You don't need me. Right. It it's surpri thankfully surprisingly rare that that happens. But I I I think first of all, it's always about making sure there's value that can be added. Otherwise, it you just you're just back to chasing numbers, right? Yeah. So at that point, let's say there's a there's a movement of funds from the US into the UK is a good example. Moving money out of the US straight to the UK or to Europe is quite challenging because of the banking system in the US. So, what when you create an account with the, with with my business, you it gives you access to first of all named accounts. So accounts are created in the client's name, yeah, and they're collected into those accounts. So no money goes to to me or my business. Yeah, it goes from the client's origin originating account to their account that's been created be it a dollar account with Commerce Bank in New York, for example. So dollars are collected in the US and then swept back to the UK. Yeah. And then traded into a sterling account in their name. So that the funds when they're sent on to the lawyer or 
wherever it may be that yeah. they need to go, yeah. they're received by the client, not from me. Does that make sense? It does. So and where, where is that account held? In, in what? Varying um, clearing banks. It's typically Barclays. Right. Okay. Can right. be RBS. Depends right. on the on the. It depends on a number of things. Okay. Um, but it, it that helps the fluidity of the deal because it removes the need for further checks, AML, etc., from the receiver. And that's not a it's not a workaround. It just means that there's not if if, if funds come from my business, then I have to be verified yeah. by the course, again yeah. by the lawyer yeah. or the receiver. And I would bank. imagine clients are more comfortable with it going of to course. account in their own name. Yeah. For sure. Does it help um, that we're based in the UK? I, I read somewhere they said that London is one of the biggest sort of clearing houses in the world in terms of putting money through. Yeah, um, London is the, most of the daily FX flow goes through London um, globally. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it, it helps in terms of, I guess, the from a time zone point of view. You know, it, I, I can trade from Sunday night to. Friday night at 10 p.m. I think. Yeah. So there's all that. It's an it's an open market from that perspective. Yeah. And I think again that's the other part of going back to the the earlier question is I don't deal with volume in terms of clients. I don't have hundreds and hundreds of clients. I deal with business cases. Yeah. So it's like it's a much smaller number of client so that that SLA is not reduced, but so that again if they need to, I don't know if they've got a question at 10 o'clock at night, whatever it's it gets answered. How many clients would you typically have at any given time? Between, I don't know, maybe no more than 10. Oh, wow. Okay, yeah. So you really can give an incredible level of yeah. service. Okay. And, it, and it does it does require that. When, when you get into the actual business end of the transaction, you know, there can be, it can be, it's very high touch. Yeah. And that's, I think that's, but that's, that's, it's by design. I yeah, want that's it to the be point, that way. Right? Yeah, that's exactly how our business works. I was going to yeah. say, there's yeah. some great synergy. Uh, yeah. our, our magic number is no more than 10 right. sales listings at mm-hmm. any time. Because we, like you, identify that above that level, it becomes tricky to yeah. them more. <clears throat> so that's your one-to-one model. Mm-hmm. As you grow or scale Lucid Financial Markets, how do you maintain that one-to-one model? That's this is really interesting, and I, and I think I've what I've kind of the the best way to answer that is looking at the what what value do I need somebody within the the business to 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 be able to offer, and actually that's it's the care and attention piece that's. M- as much, if not more important than the, any kind of market expertise. I see myself becoming more involved in every transaction, but from a, maybe at a different point in the journey. Right. What I want is for people to be able to communicate with the client and not smash them to pieces. That probably doesn't come from people within the industry. It may come from someone within real estate that, that wants, you know, that wants a, to look at a, a different um, career path or, it, any client service based role that wants to look at maybe working in markets that wants has an interest in that. But I think the thing that I'm finding the hardest in terms of people or trying, I mean, I'm, I'm always looking for people and I'm starting to get to a place where I'm reaching capacity. It's the ability, like I say, it's that it's getting away from the numbers or the revenue. It's about just putting that client first and being able to put that client first without destroying the brand i suppose it's very you know you become very protective of your own brand right yeah absolutely and also that's sort of second nature to you as the brand owner mm-hmm. the company owner because it's you know it's your livelihood and it's your reputation on stake yeah um but when you have to hire someone and try and instill that into yeah. a new hire that it's it's above the client service and their expertise more than anything else yeah for sure um, absolutely 
And would that um, would that uh, mean that you'd look to have um, partners rather than employees, perhaps? Or I love this question because I th I think this is interesting for a lot of businesses and the way that oh, is it entrepreneurs the right word or the way that new business creators are emerging. I think that people with social media with the access to information we were talking before obviously about these things and i think um people want to i think we've evolved into this world where people want more than a salary and what i mean by that is they want some fulfillment and some ownership essentially yeah so my my kind of dream i guess if if that's the right the right word is that everyone's an owner of some description because i think that's the only way you can create that kind of brand protection and yeah. that reliability. Yeah. Especially in finance and especially in this type of industry where I don't want people to fall into the trap of just chasing a paycheck. Yeah. That's that's where I believe the the biggest shortcoming is in in fi in any financial asset uh, asset class or aspect, uh, aspect yeah. of finance. So I think that people I want people to want to come on board and and take ownership of it yeah estate yeah and i think business. that's definitely the right way of doing it yeah a classic example of that totally out of the out of the sort of subject is john lewis right who you know that when you go into john lewis and you get a really unbelievable level of service yeah because people are vested in their partners although yeah. they're obviously in trouble at the moment but uh yeah that uh is, is definitely the way forward i agree yeah, no, no, yeah. totally. And you, you, you mentioned um, <clears throat> discussing with your wife uh, when you set up on your own. Um, what, what were your, what were your biggest challenges at the time in terms of when you set it up? I think when, when, what I've now know when you st when you start out, you have this like honeymoon period of this. You know, it's your, it's your business, and you you have your name on a limited company, and you kind of have a little bit of a spring in your step because of it and that's cool like you <laughs> yeah. know, I, I love that but the but the the sun sets on that feeling quite quick <laughs> when you go you know you go through one month and you're like i could burn a bit of savings into the world yeah month two burn a bit more and then yeah. you get into month three and you're like well this is like it's gotta you know it's gotta start to and then you st then you, i guess you have aspects of self-doubt and things like that or 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 whatever it may be and then I think that the, the short answer is just client origination, right? The same challenge we all have. Yeah. Is I think you know you have a great product and a great service and it's incredibly viable, but you've just, the challenge is getting it in front of people. And and again, going back to our, our the, the, the chat we had pre pre the, the podcast was around social media. And, and I think it's something that I've succumbed to in terms of starting to pursue it because in just past tw the 12 month mark is there much that I've done differently maybe not because I think I've rather than going out and trying to grab any opportunity I can I've spent a lot more time on trying to build a brand in this professional services space yeah, yeah. which has sometimes been at the, at the at the cost of potential revenue opportunities but because of that having been back to partner meetings or seeing partners for example for the fourth and fifth time it's now kind of i think it's now meant that my brand is stronger does that make sense yeah it, it i didn't go out and just chase revenue which i you know some days you sort of you know you miss the paycheck right yeah that's that's the the big thing when it's you know midwinter and yeah it's not coming in <laughs> and you're kind of you know the mortgage is still there and the yep. house is falling down and yeah you know but i but i think that when you come if you stick when you stick with it and you come through that 
you you come the professional I've become because of those things and because of being able to withstand them has 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 been like you know it's been stark the Very difference good. I am yeah. in the, the FX guy that I that I am now that I was. You find that your your life, even though it can be more uh, stressful in terms of not having that paycheck, it just is a much better way of yeah. living. It's a much better way of living. You've you've got to check yourself, right? Yeah. Because it's you know you don't have someone, you're not accountable to a, an employer, I suppose. Yeah. But I think that because of the because of that, you become a better person and a, you become better at the job. Have you always been a, a self motivator? I've always been really motivated by the kind of, I guess, success over money. And I, and and the the best example I can give you, I know you guys can relate to, is the is the Friday ball at Foxton's, right? <laughs> I just that was the first time I I was ever measured or challenged in my job. Yeah. And it was just my sole agenda was always just to be as close to the top of that board as I can. Yeah. And that, that kind of almost like that's just stayed with me. And I, and I, but that's in front of other people. So it's different when you're, when you're, when you're on your own. Yeah. Essentially competing against yourself. That's why I asked if you're a self-motivator about, for example, I find that I'm more motivated because I'm, I'm a duo with Chris. Mm -hmm. So I always feel like I need to be, doing everything that I can so that Chris and I are both doing everything almost for each other in a way. Um, But um, because working when you're on your own can sometimes be, it's not for everyone. No, it's not. It's it's a a lonely place sometimes. Yeah. I think um, where I've, and and I, and I have a a tremendous amount of envy of being, of not, or of you guys, for example, as a duo, being on my own has been very hard at times because you, you, you have no one to celebrate success with, but you have no one to manage the downsides either. Yeah. I found people, now I've come, like I say, month 13, 14, I've been able to generate some relationships and things within the industry that have been, they've almost become a substitute to that. Yeah. People have championed what I've done and, or what I'm doing and they've, they're kind of helping me along that journey and it's and it's been that's been really really that's been a really big deal yeah because you can you can find yourself quite isolated otherwise absolutely <laughs> and like lifestyle wise in terms of with your wife and your children do you do you find that you have uh more quality time yeah 100 percent. but i but i think that's again it's a, it's you just it's taken a long time to evolve out of that um like not nine to five but that structured meant five day a week mentality and you you i think you get to a place where you end up you might work you work from 6 a.m till midnight but you don't work every hour in between yeah Yeah. and you and that's the beauty of this is that you can and and i think managing that time is so important for efficiency you can go i know i've had days where i've kind of gone i felt really busy but i've achieved nothing yeah but then maybe three months later you sort of get the benefit of that and it's. I think that's the other challenge of being on your own is that is that is that accountability. Yeah. And making sure that you you don't face tough times, right? Absolutely. But I think that but the but the time management bit, you just it means you can do things. You can live your life, and yeah. you know you can live more. Yeah. Yeah. And absolutely. that and that and that has a not a positive knock on effect to the business as well. And it comes back to the question about people. Anyone that that joins the business. I want them to feel that way. I don't yeah. want them to feel like an employer. I want them to feel like, you know, you've got to be able to cope with 
producing results, but on your own terms. Does that make sense? Yeah, like, absolutely. Yeah. I don't want to go right to this time to this time, and yeah. you know, I don't. I don't think that suits anyone. I think yeah. we're, we're evolving away from that. We definitely. Yeah. I was. Um, <laughs> I was reading a, a book recently, um, "How I Built This" by um, a guy called Guy Ross, who uh, is a presenter on NPR, and it's a great book if you haven't read it. It's all about entrepreneurs. It's now it's some of the biggest companies because he's interviewed over three thousand senior. Uh, CEOs and so forth, and he talked about Patagonia yeah. the company, and he said that the founder, his name has now slipped my mind incidentally, but the founder of Patagonia has very rigid working hours, and that is he works six months of the year, mm -hmm. and has six months off. That's right, yeah. And he says, if the warehouse has burned down, do not call me, <laughs> because I'm not available. <laughs> I've empowered you to deal with it. You know better than I do what to do if the warehouse burns down. Mm. And he said he he's tried... His gift, if you like, to, to his employees is time, which is the one thing that, you know, is finite, right? And he gives, he empowers people to be able to do what they want to do and, and as long as the work gets done. And I thought, what a wonderful thing. Mm. And it's a little bit similar to us as well, right? Because we always work. Yeah. You know, sometimes, you know, there's emails going at two o'clock in the morning and you're thinking, what are you doing? Mm. But if you, you're structured to, you know, because we all have a corporate background, you know, if you're structured to work from nine to six, at six o'clock, you're switching off. Yeah. Unless it's very important, but yeah. you are sort of switching off. And if you're not, your, your spouse is telling you to do so. Yeah. But when you have your own company, you're always working. But when you're not working, you can do the laundry or you yeah. can take the kids to school or whatever. And right. those are very empowering, um, you know, things for us. So It's the flexibility it gives you, I think, you know, you can, you know, I'm, my business can operate completely online wherever I am. I can, I can work it, I suppose. And that's, that's really nice because you don't have that feeling of, I can't go because I've got to work because... As long as you're available, you know, okay, yeah. you rely on technology, I suppose. But Well, talking about technology, um, in our industry, as in every industry, AI is a huge, um, you know, subject at the moment. Mm -hmm. What's going to be automated and so forth. What, where do you think the foreign exchange industry is going to go in the next five to ten years? Um, Any like, radical I've, changes or? Yeah, for sure. I, I, and I think, I think it would be, be wrong to think otherwise. But I, but I also think that, you know, AI has become a thing of right now. It's kind of we've had this big emergence, but AI has been around for years, yeah. and it's not it's 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 new in terms of how we use it with ChatGPT and these types of things. I think we can all agree that they're limited, and I think it also highlights the the, 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 the kind of natural human instinct to want to talk to a person. I don't think we're very good at dealing with coping with just machines like the whole. You know, automated answering and stuff like this. We, we, we it, it, it winds us up. And computers are buggy, and they won't always get it right. I think there's some amazing AI right now. I'm a huge fan, champion of AI. I think it's, I think it's really important. Um, but I, I think also there's, these are service industries, and ultimately, whilst we're real estate experts or FX experts, whatever it may be, legal or otherwise. People will always want the view and the feedback from a human, from, a, from someone's experience. Especially when there's a problem. Yeah, co correct. And I, and, I, and I think that's, you know, goes back to the question you asked around what, what maybe makes this business different to others or competitors is the problems. You know, we don't, we don't buy house insurance hoping our house is going to burn down, mm. you know, and it's the same, exactly the same principle. It's, the, the it's when there's issues that you need the reliability yeah. or the experience or the understanding, you know, and I think that's really, that's what I'm fascinated by within your industry is that that's where the real 
progress is being made because people are going, okay, it's not just go on right move, I'll have that one and that's the job done. It's so much more to it. And AI can't, AI, can't, I, I'm struggling to understand how AI can disrupt the real estate industry. I think it can disrupt things like markets in terms of how the ideas and information that I maybe present may be done automatically. But again, that's nothing particularly new. Um, what about things like cryptocurrency? Crypto, I, again, the, 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 the theory of crypto, I think is fascinating. I think it's, I think it's a really amazing technology and I'm, I don't deal, I guess, in crypto. I don't, I don't, I don't provide it, but I'm, I'm very interested in that industry. Do you see more governments taking a real hard look at cryptocurrency at the moment and thinking about sort of institutionalizing it? I was thinking about the, the BRICS meeting they, that took place not that long ago. Yeah. They were talking about sort of having a combined cryptocurrency of some sort. Yeah, I, I think I think it's exactly that. I think that we, I think it's a very useful technology. I think if it was going to be, I think that's a huge requirement for users of it to become comfortable with hmm. crypto. Why are we not all transacting in crypto? Because can't, get our heads around it. Most people, you know, if you say, what is crypto? Mm, and you need a crypto wallet. Yeah, correct. Yeah, yeah it's not, worried it's not, it's not transaction, Sam right? Bankman-Fried right. scandal, and yeah. I think yeah. people are well, if I could, if I could, if I could buy a can of Coke in the off-license mm -hmm. with cryptocurrency, I would use it. Right. But it's not It's not available in that way. No. Um, but why, why would you use it? Why not just use it? Well, I wouldn't say I would use it over currency, but if suddenly the whole world moved towards cryptocurrency mm -hmm. more and more, right, I would be more welcome to it. At the moment, I think of, you know, Cryptocurrency, now see volatility. Yeah, I see uncertainty. Um, it's not regulated, so you know where's the ceilings? Uh, there are various. I'm, I'm just unsure about it. Mm. You know? And and people that are in crypto, <clears throat> which is every Uber driver I've come into mm -hmm. so far in the last couple of years, <laughs> you know they love crypto and it's their way out of driving an Uber. Right? It's like we're investing in crypto and you know my ten thousand is going to be worth ten million. Everyone, <laughs> one thousand. Yeah, everyone seems yeah. to be investing in it. You know, uh, or buying into it to invest into it. Whilst currency is currency, yeah, it has a different different life. Um, it's just it's. I I think that with with crypto, there are some amazing businesses that have stayed the course in terms of you know starting back in I don't know sixteen seventeen, going through a lot of ups and downs from a regulatory point of view, etc. And the kind of other side, and they're very there are some I've close to some very good or one particularly very good. Um, uh, crypto business that, that acts on the, again more on the private client side for people that want to access crypto but get some semblance of service in return you know some, yeah. some understanding rather than being just transacted through you know there's so many ways you can buy crypto right and I think people are blindly trading it and I think there are probably some strategies that might work but I think there's a big it's very risky because there there is it's so reactive um, but I think it's I think that probably more what's more likely to happen is that we get digital versions of fiat and that not not I don't think fiat currency will ever be replaced but I think the whole crypto and certainly blockchain technology is, is hugely fascinating mm. when it comes to things like legals or yeah. Well, real estate, I think in blockchain, is, blockchain. I mean, yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's huge. And it's something that we've looked into several times just to get our heads around it in terms of understanding it. Yeah. Because I think in, in the same period of time I just asked you, which was sort of five to 10 years, blockchain technology mm -hmm. should have a massive impact on yeah. real estate transactions. Yeah. Um, it's the footprint that it can create. And, the, yeah. and the, 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 again, the certainty that it offers certain 
things, whether it's legals or or the you know transactions themselves, it gives you that it gives you that visibility which doesn't exist otherwise. Perfect. Um, should we finish off with the last couple of questions? Um, what advice would you give to someone considering a large foreign exchange transaction for the first time? Um, I, th- I think it's it's if it's large, it's the, the larger it is, the more sensitive to the market it becomes. So, again, taking proper specialist advice on it is really really important. Certainly, f- from a market point of view, but also from a operational point of view of how the funds are going to are going to move from one place to another. That's it's really important people understand the actual how the, f- the physicality of that transaction and where the potential problems might exist because I think that can end up being done retrospectively. You hit the problem first and then try and solve it. But I think the the most important thing to do is make sure that there are no potential problems that are likely to arise. Um, and, and that, like I say, that just comes from taking taking some advice on it. Um, and don't view it as a, as a, you know, cheapest rate thing. That's just, it's just not, a, it's, it's the worst way to, to make that transaction. The, 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 the executional side and the and the guidance around actually putting the trade in place are far more important than yeah. the rate you know the rate since we've been talking now is is different it will be different again <laughs> in another hour and yeah it's, it's about understanding the the current market what the impacts that may have on your transaction good or bad and and making decision really good quality decisions off the back of that information Thanks, Dave. We're running out of time now, but can you just um, can you tell our listeners how to get in touch with you? Um, if, if, you know, if there's some of the service that they would like to use. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think the, the website's the best place, lucidfinancialmarkets.com. Uh, you can find all the information on there, uh, all the uh, social media, etc. Which again, I think is going to. I'm starting to create content around the process and more a- aspects of what. I do and we do on a daily basis, which hopefully help would be really valuable to people. Very good. Well, well, when you when we see those posts, we'll share them as well. Yeah, and we'll add your contact details too to the podcast. As well. Yeah, amazing. Yeah, great. fantastic. Thank you so much. Thanks, that was really yeah. really fascinating. It really was. Thanks so much for coming. Thanks for having me. Speaking with us. Really good. Thanks, David. Thanks, guys.